0: From Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of global hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. So powerful. A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety.
1: Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartoll in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is, what is it, Tuesday, the 2nd of July, 2013. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So,
2: Buckle up and let's get started I, but I not, do me a favor. favor let me in here. Then we can find the rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a of effective- I'm exhausted
1: I shouldn't even be recording this today it's it's uh Tuesday it's four pm right now I got up at four thirty in the morning this morning not for any particular reason I just woke up it happens a lot. I just wake up in the in, you know middle of the night, basically, and I can't get back to sleep. It just it doesn't work. I just sit there staring at the ceiling, and I'm like, well, this is dumb. I might as well get up. So anyway, I've been busting my hump about this book. For those of you who don't know, I've been uh, putting together a book. I'm actually publishing a book this summer. Yay! And uh, it's a collection of stories. It's called This Ain't What You Wrong For, because Nelson Algren, in his book, Nonconformity, said, quote, no book was ever worth the writing that wasn't done with the attitude that this ain't what you wrong for, Jack, but it's what you're damned well getting. So, yeah, it'll be available probably late July, beginning of August, and we're having an event in Madison. If you live in Madison, Wisconsin, you should totally come out. There's details on my website, which I have just overhauled, which is at just-text.org. That's J-U-S-T hyphen T-E-X-T dot O-R-G. So go to that, check it out, and uh, I've I've uploaded some new stories there, some very short pieces, and uh, just made it a lot more readable and stuff. I don't know if you've ever been to the other one, but the last website was uh, whatever, it was stupid, so I fixed it. And now the new website's awesome! A couple things I want to talk about before we get to current events. Um, first of all, I've been thinking a lot about markets lately, because, you know, the the eternal struggle that we have about capitalism versus communism is all about the, the holiness and the sanctity of the market. And right now, the you know, the Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate have this attitude that, you know, Republicans and conservatives across the, the US have this attitude that the markets are rational The markets are the way to go markets are the best way to guarantee freedom and blah 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 but what I've come to realize is that markets are not rational what they are is a market is a stabilization machine they don't seek enlightenment they don't seek fulfillment or even utilitarian satisfaction markets seek stability if you could have a stable market that generated revenue without producing anything that would be perfect yeah and So it's not that they're rational. It's not that they they automatically help us. It's that they they do what they need to do to become stable and to increase revenues. And if that tends to result in people getting goods, great. If it doesn't, fine. There's no inherent connection between the efficiency or the stability of a market and the goods that accrue to everybody else. And that's why our economic system is so screwed up is because that that stability can very easily be found on top of great suffering and it often is as you know if you work a job that you know doesn't pay a living wage so many people do it sucks It's pathetic the other thing i want to rant about right here at the opening is experience matters I've been thinking a lot about teachers who have been teaching for a long time. I've got 13 years in the profession, 10 years at the school I'm in. I just got the at the end of the last school year, they gave me this awesome travel mug. It's like you know, it's sort of like the gold watch. I guess I'll get that, you know, in, at the end of 30 years. But you know, I, I, that's that's humbling. It's it's nice to see. I guess I'm becoming someone with experience. I'm like the third most senior member of the English department at my school, which is weird because I would think that somebody with you know, I don't think of 10 years as being a lifetime of teaching yet. But, whatever. My point is, you know, in the United States especially, we act like experience is irrelevant. And only the latest research brought in by reformers should really be respected. But that's ridiculous. Um, this is part of a larger social trend of you can do whatever you want instantly. We're, we're given, you know, and I've ranted about and text messages and microwave ovens and blah, blah, blah. And don't get me wrong, I use microwave ovens, of course. I like texting people. It's a very convenient way to communicate. But we get mixed up when we think that's the standard for how we communicate. And that's the only way we need to communicate, right? Because it bleeds through to other parts of our lives. And this social trend of you can do whatever you want. You know, you look at American Idol or Uzbekistan's Got Talent. Or whatever it is, all you have to do is go in front of Simon Cowell and sing a song and bam, you're a star. Or you get picked up by some reality TV show. It doesn't matter what you're famous for. The key is to just be famous. And it can happen to anyone. Life as a result, all of life just becomes a big lottery. We're all just waiting to be discovered by someone. And I'm guilty of this too the whole reason I haven't bothered with submitting my book to publishers is because I don't want to bother. I want to. I want someone to just stumble upon it and be like, oh, this is brilliant. I want that, you know, discovery thing. I don't want to have to do the work of submitting to publishers. Now, I am doing all the work of, you know, self-publishing the book. So, you know, in that sense, I feel like I am willing to put in the work. Uh, and it's just ridiculous that I haven't bothered submitting you know, novels, for instance, to publishers because, you know, I, I could do it. But the, the point is, you know, the, the modern mindset is that you know and this is true about you know the latest generation of young people are going to become hip-hop stars just by spitting freestyles with their friends and eventually they'll meet somebody who'll give them a record contract boom they're the next 50 cent you don't need to practice you don't need to put in work you don't need to learn from experience you just need a chance and you need it whatever it is it's like that simpsons episode and uh hey i even have the sound effect right here let me play it
2: for you
3: lisa bart's got something you can't learn in school zazz what
2: is that? Zing, Zork, Kapalza. call it what you want in any language it spells Mazuma in the bank. Zork, what is Zork? I didn't say Zork. Now,
1: everybody who played video games back in the day knows that Zork was an awesome text adventure, uh, the gold standard of early text adventures, but whatever. It, you know, this notion that yeah, like if you've got it, you'll make it, you know, and and I'll, you just have to want it bad enough. And and, and it's not that's not the way it is. That what it takes work you know, luck's an important thing, but, but but we're we're reorganizing our social attitudes such that forget about experience. Forget about learning from people who have paved the way in front of us. It's just about do your own thing and, and be a superstar. You know, the, there's some song about you're an exploding star. I don't know. Alright, the last thing I want to play here is uh, Lester Freeman on The Wire. It's a great TV show if you haven't watched it. You know, it's not for kids, but it's a great TV show, and this character, Lester Freeman, talk about you know learning from someone with wisdom. He, uh, he's a really great character, and his shining moment is when he confronts the you know, rambunctious energetic cop named uh, Jimmy McNulty about you know, how it ends. So let me play this bit for you. It's like a minute long.
3: Tell me something, Jimmy. How exactly do you think it all ends? What do you mean? A parade, a golden watch, a shining Jimmy McNulty day moment. When you bring in a case so sweet, everybody gets together and says, Oh, sh! he was right all along. We should have listened to the man. The job will not save you, Jimmy. It won't make you whole, it won't fill your up. I don't know. A good case ends. They all in. The handcuffs go click and it's over. And the next morning, it's just you in your room with yourself. Until the next case. Boy, you need something outside of this here. Like what? Dollhouse miniatures? Hey, 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 a life. A life, Jimmy. You know what that is? It's the shit that happens while you're waiting for moments that never come. Now, the dollhouse miniatures
1: thing is supposed to be a cutting remark because while Lester Freeman's waiting for stuff to happen, he, you know, woodworks these little dollhouse miniatures and sells them for a lot of money. And uh, so that's the the joke is that, oh, he's wasting his time with these things and not actually living, blah, blah, blah. But uh, he he's a great character. And, and dude, we've all got our dollhouse miniatures, man. I got my video games, whatever, whether it's, you know, 10 in a garden or... Killing dragons in Skyrim, man. You gotta have something else. And people to love and and friends and... Having a life, basically, yeah. Okay, uh, this week's take—this uh, week, listen to me, whatever. Uh, the take action for this episode is—the uh, ACLU has a thing up about Snowden, and uh, so I'm going to add a link to that. And Edward Snowden, you know, he needs due process, duh. Uh, fortunately, I, I think it's fortunate that Os- uh, Osama, uh, Barack Obama said when he was asked recently, I guess he was in Senegal, that uh, you know, are they going to go after Edward Snowden? He's hiding out in Moscow Airport or whatever. Uh, Obama said, we're not going to scramble jets to, you know, go get a middle-aged hacker. Um, and I think that's a good thing, in a way, that he said that, because it indicates that they're not going to go to war over this guy. Uh, whatever. All right. Enough of that. Let's talk about some current events, baby. It's getting crazy in Brazil. The Bugle did a great episode about this recently, and I got some news stories about it. Uh, The first one's from The Guardian. The headline is, Brazil protests take to the pitch as People's Cup highlights evictions. Physically, it's only a few kilometers away from the Maracanã Stadium, but in symbolism, the People's Cup could not be further removed from the mega-sporting events now being staged in Rio de Janeiro and other Brazilian cities. Instead of the World Cup success story of new stadiums, corporate sponsors, and wealthy football stars, it is a protest event staged in a rundown community center, backed by civil rights groups and played out by those who feel the 2014 finals and 2016 Olympics are being used to push them further down the social lower divisions. The event was a foretaste of the widespread protests that have hit Brazil. On Monday, more than 100,000 people took to the streets across the country to protest against the high costs of the World Cup and poor public services. Among the most contentious issues is that surrounding Via Autodromo, a poor community in the west of the city that is close to the site of the Olympic Village. And we've seen it out of this article now. We've seen this pattern happen over and over. It happened in Atlanta in 1996. It happens everywhere. I heard it happen in China. The, the organizers of the Olympics, they want to make it look like everything's shiny and clean and rich in the area where the Olympics are taking place. So... I heard in Atlanta they were, like, giving homeless people, like, one-way bus tickets to other cities and stuff. It's ridiculous. It becomes this ludicrous whitewash facade they put up over the society. The government has said that residents must move because they are inside what will become the security perimeter. Locals contest this and believe they are being pushed out because the Olympic Village will later become an upmarket residential compound. Gentrification. Gentrification. Antunes, a construction worker who formerly lived in the city of God on Rio's outskirts, and that's a great movie if you haven't seen it, uh, says the government has offered his family a new home, but it is less than a tenth of the size of his current house. Uh, now another article I found is uh, from the BBC, which is about the president of Brazil, uh, Dilma Rousseff summons Brazil cabinet over protests. Uh, Brazil's president Dilma Rousseff has called an emergency cabinet meeting to discuss the country's most widespread unrest in two decades. And later on, I don't have an article about this, but we found out that uh, it's had some effect. They've, they've, the government has responded to these big protests. Imagine that. Uh, Protests began more than a week ago over transport fare rises, but they are now also directed at corruption and the cost of next year's Football World Cup. More than a million people are reported to have taken part in the demonstrations on Thursday in about 100 cities. One man died when a car drove through a barricade in Sao Paulo state. And there's also a really good video from YouTube called uh, this woman named from YouTube, uh, Michael Scott on The Office. I hope someone from YouTube shows up. Anyway, uh, this woman, Carla Dowden, uh, is a Brazilian woman who posted this really interesting video about all the reasons she's not Owner of World Hi,
2: Cup. Hi, my name is Carla. I'm from Brazil and I'm here to tell you why I am not going to the World Cup. One of the reasons for making this video is that every time I tell someone that I'm from Brazil, someone in the group tells me that they're gonna go to the World Cup. So we went to the streets and we asked people here in the West what came to their minds when they thought about Brazil.
0: The girls Ronaldo.
3: Sucker. Sucker first. Lots of party, lots of
2: dancing. But here's when it gets serious. The World Cup is going to add up to about 30 billions of dollars. That's more than the last three World Cups added together. They added up to about 25 billions. Now tell me, in a country where illiteracy can reach 21% and averages 10%, a country that ranks 85 in the human development index, a country where 13 million of people are underfed every day and where many, many other people die waiting for medical treatment. Does that country need more stadiums? So
1: the whole video is really good. You should check it out. It's all on my website, org slash synapse. And uh, there's a lot more to say about the World Cup, but I'm, I'm trying to keep this short. So I'm going to move on now to fracking. Josh Fox is on The Daily Show. I'm going to add a link to that because uh, he was a re- it was a very interesting interview. They had two extra segments that went up on the web. And uh, I'm just really excited to see Gasland, too, because he's a, he's a very entertaining guy, very smart, knows his stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, I watched uh, Promised Land again with the Duchess, and that's a really good movie, too. You should check that out. It's not Gus Fancy. Sands' best work ever, but it's it's definitely worth seeing. It's a good movie. Um, Yeah, National Geographic had a very interesting article. The headline was, Fracking's Threats to Drinking Water Call for Cautious Approach. Uh, National Geographic, a bunch of hippies. A study led by Rob Jackson of Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment and published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that drinking water wells located within one kilometer of a shale gas well in a region of northeastern Pennsylvania are at high risk of contamination with methane. Colorless, odorless, and highly flammable methane is the primary component of natural gas. It is not regulated as a drinking water contaminant, but it opposes potential health and safety hazards If the gas builds up in a basement or other confined space, for example, it can set off an explosion or start a fire and Coming out of the article, there was a house that blew up down the street for me a few years ago that was really scary because in the middle of the night, we heard all these sirens going off and we had to wake up and they were you know evacuating houses and all that and uh, we had to go stand with our dog for like an hour down the street while they dealt with this house that had blown up, and I'm pretty sure it was a gas explosion. Uh, If breathed in high enough concentrations, it can cause dizziness, headaches, and nausea. The risks of long-term exposure and secondary water quality changes due to high level of dissolved methane are not known. So, um, yeah, the the trailer for Gasland 2, I don't know if I have... um, the trailer on a previous uh, post so I'll put the trailer up for Gasland 2 on the site as well check that out uh, it's coming out very soon beginning of July I think so by the time you hear this it might even be out probably not but in a week or so check it out and uh, yeah that'll be good and finally in the current events file a five-year-old girl takes on the Westboro Baptist Church with a lemonade stand this was awesome uh, Jaden Sink, with more than a little help from her father, John, sold, quote, pink lemonade for peace from her stand outside the Equality House, a rainbow-painted building across the street from the controversial church's headquarters on Friday. According to John, his daughter got more than $170 in cash and more than $10,000 in online donations through CrowdRise. The money went to planting Peace, a nonprofit that owns the Equality House. How cool is that? You go on, little girl, with your bad sell. Many, many people have written to me to ask, Hey, Eric, why aren't you telling us more about the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP? Well, your prayers have been answered because... I, I, those of you who know me know that I'm a junkie when it comes to international trade agreements. I love learning about the WTO and the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. I've written a couple of pamphlets on the newly overhauled Justified Textworks website. You can read all about them. And One of them is called Global Economics 101, Five Things Everyone Should Know About the World trade organization, IMF, and all that. Uh, And the other one's called Global Economics 201. Five more things everybody should know, blah, blah, blah. They're all very meticulously researched and stuff, so read them! Um, So here, this is new thing, and where does this overview come to us from? Slate.com. So this new, the new one. There's always new agreements in the works, and usually they suck because these agreements. It sounds like boring garbage. I know, I understand, I share your hesitancy. Actually, I don't, but I know why people are hesitant when it comes to this stuff because it's like, oh, geez, trading with other countries, boring. But here's the thing: the, these trade agreements are the WTO's charter. You know all these things about. Barriers to free trade, as I've said before, these are the reasons why all the jobs in the U.S. suck right now. This is not just about the economic downturn. People look at 2008 and they're like, oh, that's why the economy sucks right now. That's part of it. But even before the crash of 2008, the American worker was not in a good position. And it's because of trade agreements like this. And they're always coming and going. So you've got to be vigilant about them people. You've got to pay attention. All right, so let me tell you about Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. <clears throat> TTIP would be the biggest trade pact of all time by far. It creates a trading block far larger than NAFTA, extending from California to Romania and encompassing almost half the world's total economic output. It would reach much deeper behind the border into public policy areas people don't think of as pertaining to trade. The $2.8 trillion of GDP generated by our NAFTA partners, Mexico and Canada, is swamped by the European Union's $16 trillion economy. TTIP would rework virtually every... Every federal regulatory scheme, providing opportunities for huge new economic efficiencies, but also for dramatic levels of malfeasance. If, for example, banks use it as a pretext to undermine post-crisis financial regulations, which they will. And that's my commentary on that last little bit there, but it's going to happen. The optimist's case, as explained to the author of this article by numerous European Union officials and politicians, is that there's too much duplication of regulatory effort on both sides of the Atlantic. Right now, an American tourist can get a taxi in, say, Berlin and feel reasonably certain that he's in a safe car. The same applies to a Berliner visiting New York. Broadly speaking, the US and the EU are both wealthy liberal democracies whose citizens care about product safety. But even though many of the same car companies operate on both sides of the Atlantic, they're actually operating under very different car safety regulatory schemes. So, okay, that makes sense. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Let's okay, if 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 the basic rules are the same in New York and Paris, let's just have one set of regulation for both of them. Okay, fine. But the problem is is that it it can it can it, it becomes a question of barriers to free trade. And those barriers as I've said over and over again on the show, those barriers to free trade are things like protecting the environment, allowing independent unions, uh, you know, guaranteeing certain living wage, even medical care, you know, can come under this. And you can have all your services cut back because you have to institute austerity. We'll get to austerity in a minute. The article finished, The last quote from the article is this. Businesses talk a big game about its desire for simpler and more harmonious rules. But in practice, this means they want laxer regulations. And out of the article, this is why we always hear so much about red tape and government oversight and the, the long reach of government. It's so burdensome on small businesses. Don't get, I don't even want to hear that because it's not about that. What government wants is no, what business wants is no government oversight. And don't get me wrong. I agree with Thomas Jefferson who said that the government governs best which governs least. But a government that doesn't, go, you know, and, and ideally as mostly an anarchist, I would like to see a government that doesn't rule at all. But that requires corporations to transform themselves or go away. And if they're not going to do that, we need government to curtail the excess of corporate power. Anyway, uh, back to the article. Mutual recognition could become a platform for a regulatory race to the bottom. America could adopt European-style lax rules about bank capital while Europe is pushed to embrace American-style light regulation of hedge funds, among many, 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 many many other things. All right. Uh, High-frequency investing. Booyah! Uh, This is from QZ.com, which you can't trust QZ.com. Who can you trust? Um, The headline is, high-frequency trading is bad for normal investors, researchers say. Despite arguments that it provides liquidity in markets, researchers from the University of Michigan argue that it harms the average investor. Advocates of high-frequency trading have argued that this kind of trading is good because it cuts down transaction times and costs and pretty much ensures that any retail or institutional investor can find someone to take the other end of their trade. But Waugh and Wellman argue that HFT doesn't actually make markets more efficient. Now, out of the article, of course, I'm not an economist. I won't pretend to be an economist, but high-frequency trading is another one of those areas I'm just fascinated by and I love to learn about and... I'm not at all convinced by claims that it's efficient and it adds liquidity to the markets and blah, blah, blah. Um, all right. Uh, finally, I'm going to talk about. Oh, no, no, there's two more things. Eh, three. Uh, Hajun Chang. Those of you who know me know I love Hajun Chang. He's my favorite economist of all time. Paul Krugman's up there, but I like Hajun Chang even more because Hajun Chang's sometimes funnier and I, I, he works really hard to make sure that lay folk get it. And he knows his stuff. He's not sleeping on, on the details, but. Whatever. Anyway, Hajun Chang uh, reviewed a book by Mark Blythe uh, about austerity, and I have a video from Mark Blythe uh, because he did a cool video about austerity. Anyway, uh, here's what Hajun Chang says about Mark Blythe's book. All in all, austerity, the history of a dangerous idea, is a masterful combination of economic history and intellectual history that puts the current policy debate into a balanced and sophisticated perspective. Anyone who wants to understand what is going on in the world at the moment should read it right away. So, uh, yeah, I also say that uh, Hajun Chang's book 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism is also a fantastic book You you totally check it out. And if you're wondering about Mark Blythe, here's a clip from the video that he did about austerity which is really good, so let me go ahead and play that now.
0: Whether you're a person, a household, a firm, or a state, you have assets and liabilities. A balance sheet. Before the crisis in 2008, everyone took on a lot of debt. Back then it made sense for many of us to take on debt. For example, the bottom 40% of the US income distribution hasn't had a real wage increase since 1979. Really, that's true. Corporates, especially banks, did the same. But they did it to make money rather than to pay the bills. It's called leverage, which is pretty much debt seen from a different perspective. Levering up is a little like going double or nothing in blackjack. If you've taken on debt from a mortgage, you hope your house will increase in value. If you think there's a high chance the value will increase, you might go double or nothing and take on a bigger mortgage. But like blackjack, there's always the risk of losing. So the banks created mountains of debt. They levered up 20, 30 times. It was like they'd pushed in all the blackjack chips, but each chip was just an IOU. So when it all went wrong, governments felt they had to step in and bail them out because they'd become too big to fail. This is where the balance sheet problem comes in and why the common sense of austerity is not so simple. If you're levered up in debt and your assets lose value, your house or your housing derivatives portfolio if you're a bank, your balance sheet as a whole is now underwater. When this happens, whether you're a corporate treasurer or a single mom, if you've got cash coming in, you'll want to pay down the debt to bring your balance sheet above water rather than spend money, which means no one is spending. And that's when the government comes in. If the whole private sector is deleveraging, paying back debt, then government automatically levers up to compensate. Tax revenue falls, so the deficit increases. Unemployment benefits kick in, and public consumption takes the place of private consumption. Now make no mistake, the problem is debt. There is too much of it across the board, and we need to clean those public and those private balance sheets. But all these pieces are connected. If the public sector cleans its balance sheet at the same time as the private sector, then the whole economy craters. It's called a fallacy of composition. What's good for any one household or firm or even state is a disaster if we all try it at once.
1: So. The whole thing is good. You should check it out. I just played a little clip there, but uh, he's a really interesting guy, and you should totally check him out. And then there's one last thing I want to play a little clip from, which is about cartoon. It's a cartoon about economic inequality in the U.S., and I'm pretty sure this is Robert Reich, the former Labor Secretary under Clinton, uh, talking about inequality here.
2: The recent past has seen greater economic inequality in America than at any time since the Great Depression. In the three decades after World War II, American incomes grew quickly and equally. But starting in the late 1970s, things began to change. Today, 1% of Americans are taking home nearly 20% of the country's total income and own more than 35% of America's wealth. And it didn't happen by accident. It's the result of policy decisions on taxes, education, trade, labor, macroeconomics, and financial regulation all of which shifted economic power away from low- and moderate-income American families.
1: So, again, I'm going to cut it there, but, you know, it's 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 worth watching. It's a cartoon. It's like two and a half minutes. You should totally check it out. Uh, a lot of good stuff being made on the Internet these days. The RSA anime things are really good, too. You've probably seen some of those, but, uh, yeah, check it out. That's good stuff about economics. A couple things in the education file this time. Uh, Yahoo News had a thing about business majors are the most underemployed graduates in America. So if you're going for that business degree thinking it's going to get you a business job, forget it. Because everyone else is doing that too. English majors might traditionally get a bad rap for job prospects, but it's the business majors who are having a hard time finding work in their field of choice. According to PayScale's Underemployment in America report released on Tuesday, graduates who studied business management and administration were 8.2 times more likely to be underemployed compared to their classmates. This ratio of underemployment is almost twice as high as for English majors who were 4.6 times more likely to be underemployed than their peers. Booyah, English majors rep represent what the economist had a thing about education technology and it's a good article it's very comprehensive it's very long and i'm going to read you an excerpt but um yeah you probably should read the whole thing it's it's the economist tends to be very happy on business like business is great and i will complain about what they say soon enough but whatever okay so and that the thing about education technology as you probably know based on what I've said in the past is that it's often seen as a cure all and it, people act as though education and technology is going to save us the same way we act as though you know cell phones are going to save us and and you know medical technology is going to save us and don't get me wrong again technology's great but it's not the job will not save you McNulty and neither will your cell phone these claims of tech transforming education were not entirely false. So it starts out with the claims from you know the 50s and 60s or 1900s or whatever you know ancient claims. Um, Uh, These claims were not entirely false. Some bright, motivated children did use new technologies to learn things they would have missed otherwise. In many classrooms, too, computers have been used to improve efficiency and keep pupils engaged. But they did not transform learning in the way their boosters predicted. It is wise, therefore, to be skeptical about the claims made for the current wave of innovation. Yet there are also reasons to believe that a profound shift is occurring. I don't know about that, but whatever. Adoption of education technology in America's state-funded schools was given a boost by a requirement to measure pupil performance in the No Child Left Behind Act, signed by George W. Bush. Online learning was first picked up in some surprising places, including rural Idaho, where schools were looking for ways to expand the limited curriculums they were able to offer. And Out of the article, I will say that, yes, that's true. Now, the, st- the thing about No Child Left Behind is just stupid, because that's like saying, like, uh, it, 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 Police departments are using more technology because, you know, we mandated that they had to use radar guns to figure out how people are speeding. It, it's idiotic. There, there, was, there No meaningful technology change came about as a result of No Child Left Behind, except more testing. Blah. Um, But the thing about, you know, Idaho, okay, and I I recognize that long-distance learning and digital schooling can be a really good thing for people who live in rural areas that don't have access to awesome classes like interdisciplinary poetics or whatever. Barack Obama's Race to the Top initiative gave a further shove, making billions of dollars available to states willing to innovate. That wording just bugs that crap out of me willing to innovate cuz other states they're not willing to innovate oh it's 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 begging for scraps that's what race to the top is it's stupid i hate it at the beginning of june his administration announced a plan to give 99% of america's students access to high speed internet within, within 5 years fine that's the type of thing we should be doing. Not ra- not beg for scraps, but here's something we're going to get to every student in the country. Those schools that have pressed on have done rather well. Rocketship, a chain of seven charter schools in San Jose, California, blends traditional teaching with at least an hour a day of individualized online instruction in mathematics, literacy, and comprehension. That sounds great. It's a charter school. I get nervous, especially a chain of charter school. That just sounds horrible. It's low-income pupils outperform those living in the wealthiest districts in the state. All right. And this is where I can't completely complain and dismiss charter schools or, you know, voucher ideas and things like that, because, uh, you know, the response from people who hate charter schools is so often just, well, those statistics are lies. But I've yet to see a a, a comprehensive breakdown of what the lie is. Now, I'm not saying I automatically believe this chain of charter schools and what they claim about their numbers. Uh, Nor do I instantly, automatically believe The Economist because it's The Economist. But on the other hand, uh, you know, it's complicated, okay? And I'm willing to say that it may be the case that these chain of charter schools can create a short-term spike in the numbers, and and show some improvement, you know, by regimenting things more. Now, what's the downside of that? Well, the regimentation means people aren't being creative, kids hate school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Their internal motivation for learning gets dulled more and more, even more than it already is in the public schools, but... That doesn't mean the numbers are lies, right? Now, as we saw in Atlanta and probably in D.C., there is a lot of lying that goes on with these high-stakes testing. And it may be the case that that's happening in this chain of charter schools. But it may also be the case that there are some good, positive innovations happening. And I'm the type of person who wants to see good innovations happen wherever they're possible. Anyway, back to the article. Over on the East Coast, Mark Edwards, superintendent of the Mooresville Graded School District in North Carolina, introduced personalized learning on laptops for all pupils aged 10 and over in 2009. His district is now one of the state's leading performers, despite being close to the bottom in funding per pupil. Between 2009 and 2012, the share of its pupils considered proficient in maths, science, and reading rose from 73% to 88%. So... Yeah, that's a good thing and uh, you know, I I'd like to see more analysis of those numbers and I'd like to see a response from people who are willing to break down what we're not being told in this article. But at the same time, I think that's that's awesome. If it's true, it's great and and we ought to do what they're doing if it's really working. Anyway, uh moving down here now we're getting to the good stuff. Only Amplify, the education arm of Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation claims to have a product available on tablets that offers an integrated curriculum for a child. Now, that's a very short little excerpt that's surrounded by, you know, several paragraphs of text. But Rupert Murdoch has a product for schools. I bet it watches them while they're asleep. Other organizations funding the application of all this potential to education include companies who, like Pearson, are already established in education as providers of textbooks and other resources. Companies already established in technology who see big new markets. Apple says it sold 3 million iPads to American educational institutions last year. And companies established in other businesses who see EdTech as a big opportunity. And now we're getting to the crux of it. Okay, if tech is a big opportunity, well, we saw what happened when Edison saw educational renovation and, and you know, uh, reform as, as, a, as a big opportunity. And if you don't know what I'm talking about with Edison, you need to go to my website, Justified Textworks, just-text.org, and read the Profit Without Honors piece about education, the business model of education, because Edison did some horrible things trying to make money off of education reform. And it makes me sick, because I want to read what I wrote in that whole thing. Hang on a second. All right, here we go. At the end of the "Prophet Without Honors piece, here's what I wrote. While educational reform may be an election year gambit for politicians and an ideological battle sword for pundits, those of us in the trenches know that the stakes are extraordinary. We see the enormous potential of the young minds entrusted to us, and we fear the damage that can be caused by the avaricious lust for profits. We wince when we see our hard work co-opted by the lords of corporate dividends, and we cringe when we watch them seduce the neediest students in order to launch successful IPOs. We know that the fight for public education cannot be resolved in a single meeting, a lone ballot initiative, or an informational pamphlet. We continue to support the public schools because they have a potential, unlike any other institution in modern society, to help make America the place we know it can be. Only by remaining active in the fight against business dominance can we keep the focus of education on democracy and provide the opportunity that every child deserves. The struggle goes on. And now, back to The Economist. Investment in the education sector in 2011 was almost as high in nominal terms as the dot-com peak and was higher in terms of volume. So, all these new technological innovations that we're constantly getting in the classroom, you know, this device, this gadget, this new software, it's all coming from somewhere. The, the, the districts aren't just spontaneously saying, you know what we need? A program that does flabla." blah somebody's coming to these districts and saying, Here's what you need in this district. Pay us seven million dollars and you can have access to this new website that does blah blah blah. And why do we need blah blah blah? It's trust me, you need blah blah blah. You need blah blah blah. That's the title. You need blah blah blah. Blah 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 is the greatest thing ever. Also, the snot burglar these concern so then there was a section about unions uh being worried that technology will be used to replace teachers and here's what the economist says they buried the lead here. These concerns from unions are not completely unfounded. Teachers at rocket ships schools in San Jose, remember that the chain of charter schools. Teachers at rocket ship schools in San Jose earn 20% more than the local going rate, but will have up to 100 children in a class when they are working one-on-one in online learning laboratories. First of all, learning laboratories, what does that mean? You're working one-on-one with people in a classroom of 100? I don't have time to work one-on-one with people in a class of 30. How are you supposed to work one-on-one in a class of 100? this gives rocket ship lower costs compared to schools of a similar size it also means fewer teachers per pupil unions also suspect that more technology implies heavy-handed monitoring of teacher performance a worry reinforced when bill gates proposed putting a camera in every classroom to help with assessments How do you like them apples? Edward Snowden didn't know how big this was getting. Wait till the robots are watching. And I've told you about them little wristbands that you wear at Tesco when you're working. Imagine that on your wrist, teachers. Why are you working so hard on this jigsaw puzzle? Why are you doing a jigsaw puzzle at school? First of all, I meant to say Sudoku or crossword puzzle. Get back to work. I'm checking my email. Don't check that email. You're done now. Great papers. Ah, get off me. Ha ha! All right. Uh, A guy named David Serrata in Salon.com has a piece uh, where he says new data shows school reformers are getting it wrong. This is a really good piece. You should read the whole thing. There's lots of good links. I found it through the Bill Moyers website, uh, which I found through. Well, I found this article through Reddit. And anyway, uh, it's a really good piece. You should read the whole thing. According to a new U.S. Department of Education study, about one in five public schools was considered high poverty in 2011, up from about one in eight in 2000. This followed an earlier study from the department finding that, quote, many high-poverty schools receive less than their fair share of state and local funding, leaving students in high-poverty schools with fewer resources than schools attended by their wealthier peers, end quote. Those data sets powerfully raise the question that reformers are so desperate to avoid. Are we really expected to believe that it's just a coincidence that the public education and poverty crises are happening at the same time? Put another way, are we really expected to believe that everything other than poverty is what's causing problems and failing public schools? So, uh, you know, and the, what we hear from the reformers all the time is poverty's not an excuse. Poverty's not an excuse. They can make it work at this chain of charter schools in San Jose. I went to a, a presentation in Madison where there were people from Milwaukee talking about, well, we have this charter school that, you know, threw out the old rule book and we've seen dramatic improvements in student test scores and this and that. And again, I don't think it's right to say, like, well, that's just lies and that we, it can't possibly work. That's just not going to work. But here's the thing, that that notion of like poverty is just an excuse, it doesn't recognize and appreciate the scope of the problem. The problem is so much bigger than one year's test scores. The problem is the social orientation toward every person for themselves. I'm not supposed to care about anybody but my own kids or myself. And, I mean, look, if I thought that way, I wouldn't be a teacher, right? Why would I be teaching if I felt like that? I could go for self in such a big way if I went into some other field. But but, but but the enlightened human says, my happiness, my liberation, my ability to exert meaningful participation in a democratic nation is contingent upon an educated, enlightened population that I live amongst. Yeah? Ain't nobody free unless we're all free, as Brother Ali said. So... You, we have to break this notion that it's just about me and that the 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 hardest part about it is when you're hustling and struggling working 60 80 hours a week to try to pay your own bills you start thinking look how hard i'm working why should i care about this other person who isn't working as hard screw them i don't have anything to do with them but that's part of the trap The people who control everything get those who have something to hate those who have nothing so that we end up not changing anything. And that's part of the trap. Keep us fighting with each other so that we don't recognize it's the people, it's the upper 1% who are making all the decisions and running away with all the wealth. So, yeah. Let's
2: talk about killer robots. Finally,
0: robotic beings
2: rule the world.
0: The humans are
3: dead.
2: The humans are dead. Humans are dead. They look like they're dead.
3: It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead.
2: I
1: thought maybe we'd get in under an hour. We still might, but we got two pages of killer robots talking about. All right. First of all, The Guardian had an article called... Yorobo, the talking robot, makes for one very creepy space companion. Uh, there's video. It's in Japanese, so I can't play any now, but it's it's pretty creepy. I'm not going to lie. This August, a consortium of Japanese scientists, engineers, and advertising bigwigs. Ding, 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 ding. Got to make sure those advertising guys are in there. Like Bob the businessman. That's right. We're sending up a robot into space. You're going to want to get one of these for your kids. Uh, will send a talking robot into space. The robot will be named Kurobo, and its mission will be to communicate directly with astronauts on board the International Space Station. All right? Now, as I've said before, you can't have an article about robots these days that doesn't start mentioning movies so guess where this article goes next the moral of this clearly is the Japanese consortiums need to watch more films but they did it in a funny way so here we go rule number one of almost every science fiction film ever made is that you should never put a talking robot in space never 2001 a space odyssey put a talking robot in space and it ended up trying to kill everyone alien put a talking robot in space and it ended up freaking out and puking milk everywhere star wars put a talking robot in space and it just stood around talking to a dustbin all day putting a talking robot in space is a very bad idea, especially if, as is the case with Korobo, the robot looks like a sinister little Chucky doll. And he does. Um, Now, a much more interesting and important article is uh, Don't Hurt That Robot, How Morality Muddles Perception of a Mind. And this is from the Yahoo News source. Uh, It's a really interesting article. I'm going to read an extended excerpt, but it's worth listening to. (laughs) In a ser- <laughs> You don't have a choice. Shut up and listen. In a series of experiments by Harvard University researchers, people were more likely to ascribe the characteristics of an active mind to non-conscious beings when they were intentionally victimized than when they were unharmed. Examples included a permanently vegetative patient who was starved by a corrupt nurse, a robot that was stabbed by its caretaker, and a corpse that was violated by a mortician. So the point is that, out of the article now, here's the thing. When we talk about You know, understanding morality, we usually think, starting with mind and going toward morality, but it's interesting to look at it the other way. Whether a person, whether you think it's horrible or not, says a lot about what you think about the person's mind that exists there or not. So, back to the article. Quote, People seem to think uh, seem to believe that having a mind allows an entity to be part of a moral interaction to do good and bad things or to have good and bad things done to them. Study researcher Adrian Ward, a psychological scientist at Harvard, said in a statement. This research suggests that the relationship may actually work the other way around. Minds don't create morality. Morality creates minds. In the first experiment, participants read a vignette about Anne, a permanently vegetative patient who was unresponsive to stimuli, completely dependent on hospital staff to survive, unable to feel pain, and not expected to recover. One group of participants read a version of the story in which Anne was properly taken care of by her nurse. In the darker version of the story, the nurse intentionally unplugged Anne's food supply each night hoping her patient would eventually starve so that the nurse could collect cash promised to her by a distant relative named in Anne's will. Both groups of participants were asked to gauge the level of Anne's awareness, capacity for agency, and ability to feel pain, all adding up to a general measure of mind attribution. Those who read that Anne was starved tended to attribute more mind to her than those who read that she was unharmed, the researchers found. The same pattern was true for participants who read two different versions of a story about George, a highly complex social robot. Those who read that George was routinely jabbed in his sensors with a scalpel thought that the robot had more consciousness than those who read a version in which George was not a target for harm by his human caretaker. End of excerpt. I just think that's fascinating and I never thought about what makes a mind in terms of the pain inflicted on it by other people. But... If that's part of it, and it makes sense that we would, I mean, this, that's what this research suggests, and it makes sense when I think about it, what does that say about what it means to be human? It could be that, you know, having a mind or having some awareness is is caused, or at least our understanding, our perception of mind comes from there, our, our interactions with pain. You don't, it's not, maybe it's not cogito ergo sum, maybe it's I suffer, therefore I am. In which case, we got to switch everything around because then dogs, pigs, chickens, cows, hello. Babe the talking pig man, Mm, bacon. All right. Marion Nessel is awesome, and she's not related to the Nestle Food Company people. Uh, you may have seen her in Supersize Me. I came upon a really interesting talk that she gave about food marketing and public health, and I want to play you an excerpt right here, so bear with me and I'll play you. Here's Marion Nestle talking about food marketing.
3: That's important because of what's happening in Great Britain where um, there's been a move afoot to put traffic signals on food products, and I was in uh, Great Britain in August and uh, I went to a waitro and I picked up this mozzarella and roast tomato wrap which has uh, two red lights, one yellow light and one green light and... 500 calories, roughly. Uh, The idea here is you put a green light on products that are healthier. uh, The yellow ones are okay, and the red ones are a strong suggestion that you probably should leave it on the shelf. And in fact, that's what's happening. So the research shows that where the traffic light system is in place, consumers are not buying the ones with the red marks on them. That is why American food companies got together to come up with a different kind of labeling system (laughs) called smart choices. And the Smart Choices is interesting because it's a collaboration between a large number of major food companies and four nutrition organizations, or three nutrition organizations in the American Heart Association. Um, And I'm embarrassed to say that the American Society of Nutrition, which is an organization of nutrition researchers to which I belong, is managing this program. and they set up their criteria. I thought the criteria were rather generous. You could have up to 25% of the calories from sugars and up to 480 milligrams of sodium per serving. Um, but even then, I didn't realize what was happening. And um, I was asked by a reporter for the New York Times to go to a supermarket with him. And the first product we spotted with a check mark was this one. Um, so here's Fruit Loops with a Smart Choices check mark on it, and it doesn't have 25% of the calories from sugar. It's got 44% of the calories from sugar because they make an exception for, uh, for cereals.
1: So I'm going to cut it there. There's a lot to be said about that. The whole thing is just fascinating. I thought maybe I'd watch a little bit of it, but I ended up watching the whole thing, and it's just really it's just got a lot of good images, and it's fun to watch and stuff. So I'll, I'll link to that, and uh, she's really good. Um, Yeah, uh, there's also a piece uh, from Aeon Magazine called The Obesity Era, and I thought this was really interesting. Uh, in fact, many researchers believe that the personal gluttony and laziness cannot be the entire explanation for humanity's global weight gain, which means, of course, that they think at least some of the official focus on personal conduct is a waste of time and money. As Richard L. Atkinson, emeritus professor of medicine and nutritional sciences at the University of Wisconsin, woo, Wisconsin, go Badgers, and editor of the International Journal of Obesity put it in 2005, quote, the previous belief of many lay people and health professions that obesity is simply the result of a lack of willpower and an inability to discipline eating habits is no longer defensible. Amen, dude. Now, don't get me wrong. Look, I, 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 there's a lot of people, myself included, who just love eating ice cream and donuts and, and cheeseburgers and, and all the delicious food there is to eat. Now, that said, we should we should make a split between health and, and weight, because in America, the whole thing is a stigma about oh, fat people suck. I hate them. They don't care about anybody being healthy. Now, I do want people to be healthy and I know that I'm not healthy because I'm overweight. and I'm working on it. But I think it's very interesting to hear. The editor of the International Journal of Obesity to say that it's not just about a lack of willpower. I recognize that there's some lack of willpower, but there's other things going on as well. Yet a number of researchers have come to believe, as Wells himself wrote earlier, a different guy now, someone named Wells, Uh, wrote earlier this year in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition that, quote, all calories are not equal. The problem with diets that are heavy in meat, fat, or sugar is not solely that they pack a lot of calories into food, it is that they alter the biochemistry of fat storage and fat expenditure, tilting the body's system in favor of fat storage. Wells notes, for example, that sugar, trans fats, and alcohol have all been linked to changes in insulin signaling, which affects how the body processes carbohydrates. This might sound like a merely technical distinction. In fact, it's a paradigm Shift. If the problem isn't the number of calories, but rather biochemical influences on the body's fat making and fat storage processes, then sheer quantity of food and drink are not the all controlling determinants of weight gain. Now, the Duchess is much more knowledgeable about biochemistry and anatomy and physiology and stuff than I, so I- I'm interested to have her read this article and let me know what she thinks. Um, but anyway, Finally, some shocking news. I know you're going to be astounded by this. Dave Hester of Storage Wars is suing A&E. He says, quote, the series is faked. This is from Business Week, and it's a stunning bombshell. A reality TV show isn't actually real? <gasps> no. But here's the thing. That's everybody says, oh, who, everyone knows it's not real. Okay, fine. But, but here's the thing. Once again, you know, in Videodrome, there's the whole thing about the TV being the retina of the mind's eye. Let me see if I can find that sound clip. God damn, I love YouTube. I spent 30 seconds searching for this clip, and now I have the speech. Just this speech. It's ready to go. Uh, The speech from Videodrome where the character, I think his name is like Dr. Television, uh, is talking about video uh, video and television and all this. Let me just play it.
3: The battle for the mind of North America will be fought in the video arena.
0: The Videodrome. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the television screen is part of the physical structure of the brain. Therefore, whatever appears on the television screen emerges as raw experience for those who watch it.
1: So, I mean, that's just... that mo- I love that movie, Videodrome. It's creepy, it's horrifying, it's disturbing. But that's part of why it's important, is because it confronts the power of television on a level that is psychoanalytic and impressionistic and accurate I think because people who are most influenced by television are the first to start talking about how uninfluenced they are by television and I'm the first to admit that I'm powerfully influenced by television so this is why reality tv is important is because the, the the television is the written of the mind's eye and if you've never been to Iraq All your knowledge, and you haven't read books about Iraq, you don't read newspaper articles about it, blah, blah, blah. If most of your awareness of Iraq comes from TV, then what is your understanding of Iraq, right? And the same is true about Africa and and Europe and England and wherever, the, the, therefore, and 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 so many people, their interaction with the rest of the world comes primarily through television. What stories are being told, and how are they being told? That's so crucial here, and that's why it's a big deal um, that this. Reality show is faked because it's true about every other reality TV show as well. They're all fake docu soaps. I heard someone say DocuSopes soaps as a good replacement for reality TV because they're not real. All right, so here we go. Uh, Business Week. It's common knowledge that reality TV shows are created to be manipulated, but it's rare for a participant to divulge details. Hester has. Quote, A&E would like the public to believe that the series presents a genuine and accurate portrayal of the abandoned storage locker auction process, his lawsuit reads. Hester, who agreed to be photographed, declined to comment for this article because of the pending suit. Quote, The truth, however, is that nearly every aspect of the series is faked. It goes on to allege that Storage Wars regularly plants valuable objects in lockers. A BMW will be buried under a pile of trash, or a stack of newspapers will turn out to be from the day Elvis Presley died, a practice known as salting. The suit also accuses A&E of staging entire storage units and asking Hester to salt lockers with his own memorabilia. Hester's suit against storage wars hinges on a section about, quote, contests of knowledge, skill, or chance that was added to the Communications Act of 1934 after the quiz show scandals of the 1950s. It forbids influencing, prearranging, or predetermining outcome, end quote. And that's fascinating to me, because when I was reading the article, I kept thinking about the movie Quiz Show, which is an awesome movie. If you've never seen it, you've got to see it. Again, a movie that takes television seriously. And that's something that's really important, because for all of the profound influence television has had on our society, so few books and movies take it seriously. The Simpsons was started with the premise that we don't ever see people on television watching television. And that's why The Simpsons has done such an amazing job of satirizing the relationship of the American family with its television. The whole thing about, are you hugging the TV? No. And the kids are hugging the TV, you know, and, and then there's a whole thing about Maggie come to the one which you love best. And Bart and Lisa are both vying for her attention. She just goes right to the TV and Homer says, Oh, TV asks so much. And it gives us so much and asks us so little in return. And at one point, uh, Bart wants to go to a, a movie, the itchy and scratchy movie. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> Homer has forbidden him because he did something wrong. And so he says, son, I know you're mad now, but you'll thank me later. You're welcome to watch anything you want on TV. And Bart goes, TV sucks. And Homer goes, I know you're upset right now, so I'll pretend you didn't say that. All right. Uh, we're we're going to make it under. No, we're already over an hour. Damn it. I thought we might be able to make it. Let's talk about
2: hip-hop. Uh, one, two, one, two.
1: This week, I want to talk to you about Lupe Fiasco. I don't even know what I think about Lupe Fiasco anymore. He's such an unusual person. Uh He's from Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. He came up with Kanye West, and he became very quickly known for two things, rhyming about skateboarding and being politically and, and intellectually aware. So... His first album is called "Food and Liquor" because there are stores in Chicago called food and liquor stores where they sell food and liquor, and he thought that was a perfect representation of the dilemma facing human beings, especially uh, young people, especially in you know South Side of Chicago and elsewhere, uh, who are are sort of faced with these two things available to them: uh, food, which is nourishing and sustaining, and liquor, which dulls the senses and puts you to sleep and you know corrupts the body. So. He has a number of good songs on that album. Uh, the biggest, the one he's most probably well-known for from that album is Kick Push, which is about skateboarding, and there's a good bit about, I'm sorry, kid, there's no skating here, so they kick, push, kick, push. But the one I want to play you a clip from is called Hurt Me Soul, because it's a really good song about the world, and it's sort of a one-person sort of rumination. It's kind of like uh, T.S. Eliot with the love song of J. Alfred rock. you know, do I dare disturb the universe? And so let me go ahead and play a clip
2: from Hurt Me Soul by Lupe Fiasco. Now I ain't trying to be the greatest I used to hate hip-hop Yep, because the women degraded But too short made me laugh Like a hypocrite, I played it A hypocrite, I stated Though I only recited half omitting the word bitch Cursing, I wouldn't say it Me and dog couldn't relate Till the bitch I dated Forget my favorite word For hers and hers alike But I learned it from a song I heard and sort of liked Yeah, for the ice and glamourage. Drug dealing was appealing But the block club kept it from in front of our building Gangsta rap, bigs, filmings Became the building blocks for children with leaking ceilings Catching drinks.
1: So, I mean, it's a good album. There's a lot of good stuff on it. His second album was called The Cool, and both of these are actually, like, stories being told through the songs, which I haven't ever really gone through the whole things and try to figure it out. But he's a good lyricist. Now, his third album is called Lasers, and it's a really... Interesting combination because the studio, first of all, there's this big struggle about getting it made, and I don't really even know the whole story. I know that at one point his fans were like protesting outside the record label, demanding that the album get released and this and that. I don't really know the whole story. But he has this whole manifesto inside about, you know, this generational sort of thing about, oh, we're rising up, we're trying to be better, we're trying to make the world a better place, blah, blah, blah. But the interesting thing on an aesthetic level about the third album, Lasers, is that the studio. Uh, maybe it was Lupe's decision. I doubt it. But there's all these guest stars. And they're not guest rappers. There are some guest rappers. But most of the different musicians are singers. So whereas on that first album, you heard it was mostly just Lupe spitting lyrics over beats. Suddenly, there's all these singers who are singing in the middle of his
2: songs. I really think the on is a bunch of bullshit. That's a poor excuse for you to use up all your bullets. How much money does it take to really make a full clip? 9-11, building 7, did they really pull it? Uh, and a bunch of other cover-ups. Your child's future was the first to go with budget cuts. If you think that hurts, then wait, here comes the uppercut. The school was garbage in the first place. That's on the up and up. Keep you at the bottom, but tease you with the upper crust. You get it, then they move it, so you never keeping up enough. If you turn on TV, all you see's a bunch of what the f*** is dating so and so, blabbering about such and such, and that ain't Jersey Shore. homie that's the news. And these the same people supposedly telling us the truth. Limbaugh is a racist, Glenn Beck is a racist. Gaza Strip was getting bombed, Obama didn't say shit. That's why I ain't vote for. Next one, either, I'm a part of the problem. My problem is I'm peaceful, and I believe in the people. Yeah. It's a-
1: So, I mean, I don't know. That song's okay, but it's so uneven. Some songs are like that. They they work, they sound good, but sometimes they don't work, and they sound really jarring and horrible. And in either case, it's just weird for me to have a hip-hop song where suddenly there's this woman singing... It's like, dude, I I, I don't know. It, it's an interesting experiment. It works in some places. I'd say that his first album's his best one, Food and Liquor. But he's also got some mixtapes, uh, Fahrenheit 115, and one called Revenge of the Nerds, and one called uh, A Rhyming Ape. And uh, those, there's some good tracks on those. It's a he's a mixed bag here here and there. I think that like a lot of artists. Um, he struggles with trying to find a way to mix the aesthetics and the dogma because when you're when you, when you've got something to say that's not getting said a lot and brother Ali has this problem too. You know, how do you make it sound good and make it funky so people want to listen over and over again while at the same time trying to get a message through, but you don't want to be too dogmatic. And so I think a lot of artists of this variety end up in this weird back and forth situation where they're not sure You know, they don't want to be too over the top didactic. I don't worry about that myself. (laughs) But as a result, they end up with songs, and you're like, I don't know what this is about. I've had that experience with B. Dolan. I've had it with Most Deaf. I've had it with Lupe Fiasco. I've had it with some of uh, Brother Ali, but I've never had that problem with Public Enemy. I've never heard a Public Enemy song and been like, I don't understand what they're talking about. And I think that's an important thing. That artists need to be able to do is to come through with a clear message in whatever they're talking about. Now, that's not to say that no work of art should ever have confusing elements in it. I mean, dude, Primer and Barton Fink are my two favorite movies of all time. But, especially when it comes to music, I feel like, you know, if you've got something to say, you've got to say it in a way that's clear. So whatever that's enough of that. All right, let uh, let me talk about the quote of the
2: Friends, week. Romans, lend me your stop because the is near but don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, got to listen to here.
1: This week's quote comes from James Baldwin. He was born in 1924. He died in 1987. He was an African-American writer and social critic. His best-known work is a collection of essays released in 1963 entitled The Fire Next Time. In a 1961 interview, he said, "Quote You read something which you thought only happened to you, and you discover that it happened a hundred years ago to Dostoevsky. This is a very great liberation for the suffering, struggling person who always thinks that he is alone. This is why art is important. Art would not be important if life were not important. And life is important. There you go, folks. We made it under 70 minutes, sort of. Uh, show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. Again, I will ask you to please check out the new Justified Textworks website, just-text.org. Uh, my website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff I've made. Shoutouts this week to Turtle502 for the Twitter love. Uh, shoutouts to Gretchen at Room of One's Own for all the support and help and email correspondence and uh, I really think it's awesome that they're still supporting local auth- authors and stuff I'm doing an event there uh, in August. It's going to be awesome. And special thanks, shout outs also to the Duchess for just being generally awesome. And we're about to have our sixth anniversary. And so, hey, I love you, Duchess. You're awesome. And um, yeah, you have made me really freaking happy. And, uh, I, you know, you hear so many people talk about Oh, you know, marriage is like a cage and your wife's the ball and chain and all this. I just think either I'm really, really lucky or we've we've evolved to some sort of enlightened level of interaction that everybody needs to evolve to. Because if you're stuck in a marriage that you don't enjoy, like if you don't like spending time with your spouse, I don't understand how you can live like that. I, I just, whatever. So anyway, Duchess rocks, and I love her, and she's awesome. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize. If there's some dumb things that I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a very busy man. Deal with hey, it. Listen,
2: I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done.
1: Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. You can send email to ESP at FBESP.org, or you can tweet me at Duke Scaff. I will stop talking now. <laughs> Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of ribonucleic records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power.
0: So powerful.
1: <laughs> you need bleg-a-bleh-bleh. Bleh.